What's up, everybody? This is Cortland from NDHackers.com, and you're listening to the Indie Hackers podcast. More people than ever are building cool stuff online and making a lot of money in the process. And on this show, I sit down with these indie hackers to discuss the ideas, the opportunities, and the strategies they're taking advantage of so the rest of us can do the same. Okay, we're here with Arvid Call and Daniel Vasallo, two indie hackers who've been on the show before. They're both very successful. They've both made a lot of money doing, I guess, following two very different paths. And I would say they're both great audience builders and teachers who have big followings on Twitter. And right now we're in the middle of talking about inflation, which I know literally nothing about. But Daniel, you had a really funny tweet about inflation recently where you talked about how inflation can't hurt you if you just avoid the red things on this graph. And you shared kind of that classic graph of how prices have changed over time and the red things have gotten more expensive over the last 20 years, like textbooks, college, tuition, healthcare, housing, and food. And the blue things have gotten cheaper over the last 20 years, like electronics, TVs, cell phone service, cars, etc. So is this what you're doing, Daniel? You're just uh, avoiding inflation by avoiding the red things? Oh, well, I mean, uh, it was it was mostly a joke, obviously. Like you, I know almost nothing about inflation, but you know, like many people, I worry about because I have some savings and I don't want it to disappear. But I think, you know, it was 90% joke, but there's some truth to it because I think you know, when we see these inflation numbers, 8% inflation year on year, I mean, that's an average of lots of things and it doesn't apply to everyone the same, right? Depending on what you're spending money on, depending on what stage in your life you're in, depending on what you do, what you can avoid. For example, you know, housing, you could, if you, if you manage to secure a house, buy a house, you have a mortgage, you're pretty much insulated from rising housing costs. So, so and that's a, usually a big uh, expense, right? So, I think it was something, at least some food for thought, uh, but it was mostly a joke as well, because some things you can't really avoid, of course, you know, food. Yeah, <laughs> I saw food was one of the red things. Like, how do I avoid food? Well, I read that and I was like, so in other words, don't go to college, don't go to school, <laughs> don't live in a house, just buy, buy a computer and go live in a library. Yeah, don't get sick. <laughs> don't go to the hospital. Well, but I mean, on that topic, who, who here has, da- Daniel, I think I saw on Twitter that you do have kids. I do. Yes. Two I mean, so kids. what? What? What is your thought for them in school? I mean, they're going to yeah, be. Do you think, do you think like, your kids should go to college? Yeah, they were born in 2014 and 2017, uh, <laughs> but they're sort of seven and five. Uh, uh, to be honest, I'm playing it by ear. Like Arvid, mm-hmm. I also come from Europe. I come from a smaller country, Malta, which sort of uh, has a different approach to education than the United States. And I'm learning as I go. I think what I'm trying to be careful with is to not set the expectation on my mm. kids that they have to go to college or they have to do this or that. Otherwise it's going to dent their opportunities or their self-worth or whatever. But I do see it a lot in the United States. Many of my friends here seem to put that expectation on themselves and on their kids. Right? Even, uh, to be honest, even with the choice of private schools and public schools, my kids are right now, for now going to a public school. And I'll admit, private schools look better, look nicer. There's probably better education or whatever. Uh, I think some of my friends spend, you know, tens of thousands, you know, $50,000 a year and they're just, you know, first grade, second grade. Right? Is it worth it? Right? I think I'd rather leave 
my kids maybe, you know, $100,000 or the equivalent <laughs> uh, with inflation oh. for when they're, you know, 18 or 20. $10 and million can, dollars 10 years from now. Probably. <laughs> right? I'm not an educational maximalist. Right? I'm not, uh, oh. I know it sounds almost bad to say it, but I'm not trying to maximize my kids' education at all costs because like everything in life, you know, if you maximize something, you're paying the cost somewhere else, right? Either financially or some other sort of more subtle way, which is sometimes even more insidious. <laughs> By far, the best thing that I got from college was my friendships. Like I have 20 or 30 great friends from college who I've had since I graduated. And that's awesome on one hand, but it's also like, I don't think it's something people should necessarily rely on. Like I've been focusing a lot in my life recently on just making more friends and turning it into a habit to make more friends continually as I get older, because I know that's something that when I'm 50, 60, 70 years old, I'll appreciate that I did when I was younger. You know, I'll have meaningful, lifelong friendships that I formed at age like 35 that I'll really appreciate when I'm older. And so I don't think school should be this crutch that you lean on for that kind of thing. I don't think it's good that people go to school, make a bunch of friends, and then just stop. I think that's a, a muscle you want to flex. That's a skill you want to work on your entire life. Yes, school has this kind of community, right, that it creates uh, yeah. that is kind of also exclusive because school as a physical place is limited in scope. Like how yeah. many how many kids can you reliably put into a room? Right. Right? That's that's kind of where it starts and that's what is what the system is like and has been for a while. What I wonder, Cortland, like do you think you would have found the same friends if you hadn't oh, been no. at that institution? Or sim been similar friends? friends I, guess? I would have found definitely fewer friends and they would have been different friends. And I think it's like, kind the of good funny thing because is well, so you have, Corlin has me to look at because we're, we're, we're twins. Yeah, we're, we're and the, I, we're the so you were, science experiment. We grew yeah, up together, were, similar genetics, Corlin, and we went to different schools. Nice. And so he was in a fraternity. He had, you know, he just pressed the button and he had a bunch of friends out of a box, whereas I was not. Um, I had a, a, a core group of friends, but what I mean, you know, a order of magnitude smaller than the number of friends that yeah, he you had. Yeah, like and, four friends. I had like four. <laughs> like, yeah, four, four close friends. And then even that friend group was gone because I left college and then I moved to San Francisco and had to completely start over. And the first thing I did when I went to San Francisco, I got a job and then I made a lot of close friends at that day job. I hate the company community stuff. I've only ever had like a couple jobs. Like I had an internship in college and like you go work at a company and they're like, we're a family Man. and we all hang out at the ball game. Like I, I, I'm not against it for other people, but like I didn't want to like automatically have to be friends with people just because I work with them. Like I never went to any of that kind of stuff. I would much rather pick the people who align with me personally. I, I have an anecdote here, maybe. <laughs> because like I, I also thought at some point that I threw a job, I would find friends and I never did. But and, and it was almost surprising to me that when I quit that job, I'm not gonna say which one it is, but it happened in, in the past, all the people that I had really close connection with just completely dropped off. Like I haven't talked to like 95% of them in five years at this point. Even though we were hanging out every day, we had our inside jokes, like we were like sharing memes and like going to see movies together and stuff. But the moment you go out of this community, like you leave the club, you're out and they make you feel it. That was a pretty weird experience. And I, I find that's very different in these kind of self-select opt-in communities like indie hackers or like the indie hacker community on Twitter or whatever, the solopreneur community, where people go in not because they are paid to be there, right? Because they want to be there. And, and that kind of community, and, and they're not paying to be there either. Like there's no transactional exchange. It is that the transactions that happen are, they're, they're supportive, they're motivational or whatever it is, but they're 
they're not monetary. And all of a sudden, it becomes much more about the community, about the internal tribal aspect, than about access and uh, elitism and exclusivity. Yep, all that yep. stuff just falls apart. Um, okay, so you and Daniel have big Twitter followings. Twitter just got taken over. Well, is about to get taken over by Elon Musk. Who knows what's going to happen? Like, how, how have you thought about platform risk? It's a risk, right? I think, uh, you know, I think you should worry about it once you have something to lose. Right? I think uh, usually I get into these discussions where people are about to start out on Twitter or sort of building an audience or whatever, and they start worrying prematurely, I think, about platform risk. And I think you shouldn't, right? You should leverage and take advantage of all the opportunities from social media, whether it's Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, Facebook, LinkedIn other forums, Reddit and the hackers everywhere, right? There's people already hanging around in those places. And I think yeah. you should benefit from there. Right? You should try to build a name for yourself in those places rather than inventing something for yourself. But at some point, right, I think, yes, uh, you start to feel that there's some platform risk. You easily start to imagine what happens if I get kicked off Twitter or the algorithm changes or I can't teach my audience. And then I think you take it from there. Then you start to adapt. You start to build an email list or build other communities or, uh, you know, write somewhere else on your side. But I think I would, I would wait until it feels like there's something uh, to lose. Well, I think with Elon taking over Twitter, you're much less likely <laughs> to get kicked off for doing anything. Yeah, like who knows? That's the thing, right? I mean, I, I, I suspect so, right? I think sort of I'm more optimistic than pessimistic, but things could, could change. It's super interesting because the platform is you. Like in, in this yeah. regard, like with yeah. with you being a like you're a media company, right? Both of us are, right? We have we have the the newsletter and the, the books and the, the courses and whatnot. Like there's yeah. all different kinds of media. I would and, also argue ND Hackers is a media company, but it's not branded personally. It's not Cortland Allen, you know, but you guys are personally branded right. media and, companies. And that personal touch is the, that is the risk. That, that's the kind of thing. Like um, the first SaaS that, that I was ever successful with, the one that we sold a couple of years ago, I built that as a sellable business. Right? And I read Built to Sell by John Warlow, great book for people who want to build a, a sellable SaaS business because it, it really tells you if you want it to be sellable, you need to be able to replace yourself in the business. The whole book is a story about an agency owner that tries to sell their agency and they can't because they are the agency. Right. And I feel for creators, that is a gigantic risk. That They are the platform and if they don't deliver and they don't have, let's call them passive income projects like books and, and info products, that, that alone is, is almost as risky as employment when it comes to that, right? The being able to be quickly fired and having to find another job. That's also very risky. But one, one thing about um, platforms like social media platforms, I think people have to understand that borrowed audiences like on Twitter or LinkedIn or wherever you are, they have synergetic effects like crazy, right? You find people, you find other audiences out there so much easier than you find one email subscriber. It's probably so right. much easier to have like hundreds, if not thousands of followers The power on of the retweet. But yeah, one retweet, like I I, don't, I had that a couple of weeks ago, like an account four times as big as mine retweeted me and, and I grew like 10% in, in my follower count, which was like like yeah. six or 7,000 people. That Crazy. just happened. And I I had no control over it, which is great, but I had no control over it because that, and that was <laughs> frightening. You know, like you have both at the same time. So board audience is great. You have all these effects, but um, at some point, and, and uh, Daniel just said this, there is a tangible risk. 
And you should diversify, maybe not from the start, but you should always allow people to opt in to your owned audience. Maybe that's 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 the more important part. It's not allow people to start. become your email subscribers and start allow a newsletter. Them to get on your list. That's right. Start a newsletter or or just capture emails for some reason, but have them so you can actually reach out to people if you need to. Daniel, I feel like you're like one of the most risk averse people that I know who's an indie hacker. I'm I'm almost the opposite. Like I don't I don't care that much about platform risk. I just go hard on one channel. Like channel. well, so Daniel, with your you have a lot of projects. I know that a big focus of yours is not doing things that you hate. And so when you you have like this portfolio of all this pro, of all these projects, how much of it is is purely self protective risk as you know sort of diversifying your risk, and how much of it is like you just want to you get you have an idea and you just want to build it. So, so I think my, my approach evolved over time. Right? I think I did the mistake in the beginning where I took the typical bootstrapper approach, right? where I came up with an idea that I, th I thought was the ideal SaaS business for me. I was imagining, you know, it's the perfect uh, combination of my skills, my interests, my expertise, and so on and so forth. And I was just going to focus on it and try to make it work at all costs. Right? And I realized after a few months that this was a very idealistic approach that I was underestimating the role of chance and randomness and luck and bad luck and all the things outside of my control that tend to have a significant impact on the success of a business. So then I changed quickly because, I, I, again, sort of I started to negatively visualize going back to a full-time job and I wanted to avoid that. So I shifted mentality to pretty much... So throw away all the idealistic stuff. How can I do? How, what, how can I make some money next month? <laughs> right? yeah. And I started looking at things that weren't particularly exciting or nice or whatever. The first dollar I made was with some freelancing, you know, for a friend of mine, sort of programming work and whatever. Then I wrote an ebook and then I wrote a course and then I sort of started a paid newsletter and then I took some more freelancing with Gumroad and then I sort of kept experimenting with things. Over time, that right, I had been sort of uh, selecting more uh, things that were much more preferable, that's much more compatible with my preferred lifestyle, with my preferences. But I'm expecting that in 2023, 2024, later, I might bump into new opportunities that will make me stop doing those or stop or do them less, right? Or maybe, or maybe do them more, right? Because sometimes another realization that I learned, which I think is quite obvious, but we tend to as well fool ourselves into believing it's not the case, is that it's hard to enjoy something if it's not working out, right? If it's not yeah. working out financially, no matter how much we say, oh, I'm doing it, I love the process, I, I, the work is fun, whatever. It's hard, right? I think it's human nature. So if something is working, suddenly it starts to become fun, even if it wasn't originally something that I would have thought I would enjoy doing. Paradoxically, this gives me also peace of mind, right? sort of the, the flexibility of not pigeonholing myself into, I need this to work, or I need something in this specific category to work. Daniel, you have a good tweet. It's, I think it's your most popular tweet of all time in terms of likes. 10,000 likes. You said, you read 100 books, 99 are meh, one changes your life. You try 100 things, 99 don't work, one changes your life. You meet 100 people, 99 you never see again, one changes your life. Life is more random than it seems, so act accordingly. And I think that that tweet is something that I live by, and it it has almost the opposite effect of what you're saying and that I don't really diversify that much. I don't really have that many backups. I'm kind of like, okay, I tried like a hundred companies. One of them is doing really well. Like I'm just going to press the gas on that one and completely forget 
every other company that I'm working on, right? And if that company can make me a million dollars, $5 million, $10 million, then it doesn't matter if I'm not sort of diversifying or I have backup options because that one was such a success. I think I, uh, what's, what I feel is important to me is to not feel the obligation that I need to double down on something. Right? There's, there's always the option but not the obligation. Because I think once we start to feel obligated, we start to feel trapped, right? And this is, I hear, I hear this with many entrepreneurs, even some wildly successful ones right, that are making way beyond their wildest dreams, millions of dollars a year, that they feel squeezed, that they can't let go of the gas now because they locked into this winning lottery ticket, right? And they feel like, you know, it's like they won the lottery, but they're not cashing out the full price, right? So I think it's an important psychological technique right, to feel like you can leave money off the table, right, you could uh, press the gas 50% and maybe that gives you some more free time, more opportunity to explore other things. I like, I like the terminology small bet. I like thinking as every incremental thing as a small bet. So I got everything to the stage. If I wanted to, I could choose to make another small bet on something existent, right, basically by uh, pressing the gas another maybe 5% on that thing. But what, with a bet, what I, I like about the terminology is that, again, it's, it's an option, not an obligation. I can place that stake, but nobody is forcing me to do it, right? Which is something undesirable, I think. I don't want to feel trapped, especially psychologically, right? because I think those are the hardest and the most insidious traps. Yeah. You mentioned uh, the fact that people feel trapped, right? Like people who are already successful. Let's talk about lifestyle design, because this is something that's kind of at the top of my mind. And I think... All three of you guys are pretty successful. Like Arvid, I had you back on Indie Hackers. I've had you on twice before, but the very first episode, you were talking about selling your company that was making, you know, 60 grand a month in revenue. I can only imagine you sold it for like a life-changing sum. Daniel, you were crushing it at Amazon. You're making like $500,000 a year in Amazon, and now you're self-employed, and all these different revenue streams are making over like $300,000 a year for you in profit. Channing and I sold Indie Hackers to Stripe for like millions of dollars in Stripe stock. So we're all like kind of set. Like we're all in a place where it's like we're pretty financially comfortable, presumably, unless any of you put all your money into crypto last year. Uh, like, how do you design, like, what do you do from here, right? Like, do you focus on making more money? Do you focus on keeping money? Like, Daniel, you're like a very safety-oriented guy. You're almost like a self-described prepper. How do you guys think about lifestyle design and what do you do kind of once you've made it as an indie hacker? The way I like to think about it is that I, I don't want to think about of myself as successful. I might have been successful in the past, right, which, you know, you could measure maybe in, in such a way, but I think like uh, the typical financial advice, you know, the past is no guarantee of the future. And uh, I'm, you know, and I think it's important to, again, not set my expectations anywhere because that leads to lots of problems. If I set, you know, you just mentioned last year I made $200,000. I started this year thinking, what if I make nothing this year? Because, you know, I don't have the kind of revenue. And I think I, I prefer thinking of it like that. And I visualize like, what if I make zero literally in 2022? And I realized, you know, I did some math, I some calculation. it won't be, you know, it would be not nice, but it won't be a huge deal. That's not, I, I have to tap in, into my savings. And that allowed me to, every dollar that I made so far in 2022, be, treat it almost like a bonus, right? It was helpful. It was enjoyable. There was no expectations, no disappointments. Everything was a pleasant surprise. And I almost repeat this every month. Now these, I mean, we're already almost halfway into, into May, but it seems like it was just yesterday. I did the same thing, right? I mean, April was my most successful month ever. I made almost $100,000 in April, like, which was quite crazy. Um, but again, like I thought, what if I don't make anything in May or anything for the rest of the year? And this, I think, uh, is, is really helpful. And something else I believe as well, that I'm, I'm not a big fan of living off passive income, right? And 
Uh, I don't think we're wired to live off passive income for a long time. I think it's there's something in our DNA. This is me speculating. I'm not a scientist. I didn't study this rigorously, but it feels that way. It feels there's something in our DNA that wants us to be active uh, on a regular basis. And that's what I think, you know, when, when our ancestors were hunter-gatherers 10,000 years ago, there was no concept of passive income. There was nobody on our ancestors who just made a million dollars and they invested them in a sort of a mix of stock and bonds and crypto and real estate. And they just sit uh, idly and they just collected dividends. It's sort of an unnatural thing. And I think, you know, it's not just some idealistic way to live with nature, or whatever. I think our subconscious, our, our lizard brain, the, 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 the part that sort of deals with anxiety and other things will start to kick in if we yeah. don't feel we're still useful to the to society of today, right? Because I was useful to society of yesterday or five years ago, but right. the world changes, the environment changes, I change, my circumstances change. And I think active income by doing something today, by earning a dollar today, I'm testing my fitness for the world of the day. And that, that I think helps with anxiety, helps with peace of mind, with resiliency and all these kinds of things, right? So- I've never met anyone who, who wants to, to make I met people who want to make millions of dollars and retire on a beach. I've never met anyone who's actually done that. Yeah, right? I've same. met a lot of people who've like gotten rich and like succeeded, and, and then after that, like, what are they like? Arvid, like, Arvid's not yeah. like, ah, oh, I'm gonna rest on my lower, my laurels. Like, you're now like this huge indie hacker educator, and, right? Or even with like like indie hackers and like us at Stripe, it's like we're like, cool, we did the thing with indie hackers. We're like, okay, how do we make it bigger and better? Like, what's the next challenge, right? You're almost always like Sisyphus, sort of pushing a boulder up the hill because. For whatever reason, like that's the fun part. It's the fun part is to sort of tackle these challenges and, like you said, Daniel, be useful to the world of today. It's kind of it's kind of embarrassing just to be like, yeah, I did this thing ten years ago. Well, I think and it's that's all I think I've it's more done. than that. I think it's not just we don't really know that many people who have just uh, scored it rich and then gone and, and laid out on a beach. Actually, I do know some people who've tried to do that and then they got really depressed and then they went back into work. I think it's what you said, Daniel. It's like, it's it's like we, we have this need. Yeah. And the funny thing about that is I'm an entrepreneur. I wanted to write a book before I did this company and I'm, I'm really into projects. And I had this idea in my mind that like, okay, well, once these things are successful and I make a lot of money with them, then I will want to do those things. But, and I had this sort of burning anxiety, but I feel that now that on the other side of knowing like, no, you just, you get to the top of that mountain and you, you want to go to another mountain. If I had known that that was going to be the case earlier on, I think I could have appreciated it a lot more, if that makes sense. Yeah, there was a moment that one of the, the strongest, biggest struggles that I had was just after selling the business. Like all my passion, all my enjoyment, all my source of where I felt accomplished was just taken away from me. And then, of course, they handed me this big check. That was great. But the fact that my right. passion was gone, that was that was, uh, that was was a, a mental challenge that I was not expecting, even though I knew it was going to come. Like every founder on every podcast, when you ask them about their exit, will tell you there's this void. Beware of the void, right? Because everything that defines you as a maker, as, a, as an indie hacker, as, a, as an entrepreneur, is your customers. It's your interaction with the people that you serve. Like your call it audience or market or customer base, whatever it is, these people, they are the reason you're making money and you're the reason for them to live a slightly better life. There's a connection there. And once this is gone and you have nothing, you have a lot of money, but money doesn't, it literally can't make you happy because it's not an active agent. You need to find that active agent that gives you something back. And for me, that was writing. 
I, I was never a writer, right? I, I, I never wrote anything really before I started blogging. And I only started blogging because I felt, hey, I know this much now. I learned so much from people all over the place, including the Indie Hackers podcast. And I, I just wanted to see, maybe I am now in a position where I can share instead of just consume. And then I started writing and I noticed, ooh, thank heavens, did I find something that gave me my passion back? Because otherwise I would have been depressed. I, I, I know I would have been because I, I could see, I can still see lots of founders struggling with this after they sell. It's, it's almost a cliche, I think, because I think like the, the number one thing people hear when they hear like rich people talking about their successes, the success didn't make me happy. And then I think it's very easy to hear that and, and not take it to heart, right? Like I never took that to heart. I was like, yeah, yeah, that's easy for you to say you have a lot of money and you sold your company, et cetera, et cetera. Like, well, of course you're going to say it didn't make you happy, but like I'm not in that situation. So like, that's all I care about, right? And then I think once you get there, you realize like, okay, actually it is kind of the journey, like having that lofty goal that's a challenge to reach is itself uh, what is giving you purpose and meaning and like striving to get there. And then once you get there, you probably need some sort of other journey to go on, right? And I think for a lot of people, we follow this, I think it's called like the deferred life plan where we have these things that we really want to do, but we defer them because like, well, first let me like make a lot of money, right? Let me do this business, et cetera. Channing, like you wanted to write your books. Arvin, I'm not sure if you wanted to write beforehand, but <laughs> now you're writing. Daniel, I don't know, like, do you feel like you like deferred anything in your life until you got successful with you work at Amazon or? Well, I, I used to. I used to live the deferred lifestyle, life, life plan or whatever you call it, right? Until sort of two years ago, I would say, right? And I sort of, I, I think I came a bit into my senses and I started to realize how foolish this uh, idea is and how much hidden risk there tends to be. I think what, uh, sort of to continue a bit on what Ar Arvid was saying, uh, this is also why I, I, I'm a fan of building a portfolio of things, right? It's sort of the... The one way I think to sort of uh, make this thing of something going away less painful is by having other things going on at the same time. You know, just a personal anecdote, something that happened yesterday, I haven't even talked about it publicly yet. Some of you might know that I had this quarter time role at Gumroad as a fractional PM. Uh, I, I had to wind it down uh, sort of, and I had to sort of leave yesterday, like yesterday was my, was my last day. Uh, because Gumroad basically outgrew my capability, my skill, my my my, my capacity, and my ability to, uh, with my ten hours a, a, a week, right, to sort of be able to keep on top of things and so on and so forth. And you know, it's a bit disappointing because I really wanted to make it work, but you know, after two years, I had to, we had to stop. But you know, it feels disappointing for a second. But then I have three other things going on, right? Sort of, it doesn't put me into that void where I now need to reinvent something, right? And this is sort of something that even when I when my SaaS business failed, right, or I started to realize that it wasn't going to be as successful as I thought it was, I had two other things, you know, one, one that I already launched, another thing that I was about to launch, and it sort of helped me give my attention to those things without sort of feeling that big spike of disappointment. There's something about this. Like, I, thanks for sharing this. And mm -hmm. I, I feel like you've been sharing these things publicly as well. And I think that makes all the difference in dealing with these things too. Because if you build in public, yeah. and I don't just mean like build a business, but build, mm -hmm. build a lifestyle in public and you share why you do it, you share what you do, you share your finances, you share what works out, what doesn't, that journey alone in sharing this is instructive to other people. And that gives a purpose. That gives purpose to failure. Then even if you fail, with something, with a SaaS business, wonderful. Now thousands of people learn what not to do. And all of a sudden it, it's, it's an empowerment message, right? You may have some financial loss or one of your many, many projects that many small bets doesn't work out. Well, thankfully you have a few more and this is now a lesson. 
one that I think building in public, that particular kind of building in public is empowerment, not just for the people who follow you, but for yourself as well. Like anything that happens is good, depending, of course, sure, from yeah, which absolutely. perspective you look at it. But I think that, that helps me too. Because I also have a somewhat failing SaaS business that is just like chugging along at like $48 monthly recurring revenue, really not happening much in that regard. But I can talk about it. I can say, hey, I'm not spending any time on this. I have other priorities. I don't need this. You know, I, I can I can take this, what other people would call a horrible failure, and just turn it into a, well, here it is in the context of my larger plan, right? It's, it's something that is not a failure anymore. It's just an anecdotal thing to share with people. All right, let's talk about making money as an indie hacker. Because we've talked about, okay, what do you do once you've made it? But how do you make it? I think everyone here, we sort of were, I guess we had a hodgepodge, right? Like indie hackers as a community, or you had a SaaS business. And then Daniel, I guess you worked at Amazon, but then became like more of a creator. And so it's like three different approaches. Nathan Barry has this excellent blog post called The Ladders of Wealth Creation, where he talks about how like you can basically start off as a content creator, or you can or you can start off basically getting a job, and that's trading your time for money, and you can then like move into like, pro- like consulting. So now you're sort of self-employed, trading your time for money, and then you can move to productized consulting, where you're automating away what your serv- like your services, so you can scale to have more customers. Like I talked to Brett Williams a couple months back, and he's making like one and a half, two million dollars as a designer. Because he's like basically turned his consultancy into like an extremely automated thing where he has very predictable workflow and tools to help him do that. And then at the highest end, Nathan put like a SaaS business basically, or you can build some sort of software that is making money basically on its own. These are all different approaches, right? And Arvid, like you're interesting to me because like you've almost gone backwards. You're like, I did SaaS. Now I want to go be like a creator and like trade my time for like. Like Nathan kind of shared that from the position of a successful SaaS CEO, right? You have yes. to kind of look at it from the, the way the that I've done it. Is <laughs> the ladder. <laughs> I am right up here, and I think it is. It's perfectly fine for his position, but I think it's it's more a, a graph of things than an actual ladder. Like you have it's okay. a web, right? You you can be at any point, and you can be happy there. You can carve out your little niche, your little spot. And if, if it takes you from SaaS to, through productize to content or from content through SaaS to then productize it like for bread or whatever it is, doesn't really matter. I think the, the most important part is that you have something where you can empower other people through either a service, like you help people reach their goals or you teach people teaching them like other people or you teach people how to help themselves it really doesn't matter like money happens as a transactional exchange to when you help other people and for that i think any form is fine like i I started with a SaaS. now i'm essentially building a media business like i i never thought i would but it turns out this is more enjoyable for me this allows me to be more motivated than in a SaaS. in a SaaS, i had anxiety and mental health issues in this media company i wake up every morning and i'm happy Right? That's where I wanted to go. And, and that's also, and we talked about lifestyle design. I just want to kind of throw that in here. That's what I optimize for. I optimize for two things, for an empty calendar. This thing that we're doing right now is the only thing I'm doing this week. Like literally the only thing. And for when I get up that I want to do the thing that I'm going to do that day. Those are the two things I optimize for. And you probably noticed that money is not in there, right? Because that was solved with the exit. The biggest challenge is how do you make your first dollar, your first hundred dollars, mm-hmm. that your your first small successful thing. And I think that's where I think there's still a gap for people about how to reason about that first small win, I like to call it. So, because I think that is what changes everything. 
once you do have something small that's working, I think your odds of being able to build on top of that increase exponentially compared to somebody who still hasn't had something. And I think, unfortunately, we tend to glorify failure a bit too much that we tend to uh, sort of Many people tend to try very ambitious things with low odds of success and then they fail and they say, oh, but at least I learned a lot. The journey was fun, whatever. But we tend to learn more, I think, from something small that worked. I'd rather try something tiny that made me, makes me $100 a month or makes me $1,000 once because I managed to sell something to strangers. I have some funnel that's working. I built some relationships, some customer contacts. I have some a useful knowledge versus I say something ambitious. I spent a year of my life focused on, on it and then it flops and I have nothing. Right? So it's all, it seems almost counterintuitive right? to go for the low hanging fruit, to start with the small wins, to curb your ambition. As I mentioned before, what I did to myself, like I like to ask myself, what can I do to make some money by the end of this month? I think if I were a new entrepreneur, I just jumped into self-employment from scratch, this is what I would do. I would ask myself, how can I make some money, like whatever it is, even just five bucks by the end of May? And I would maybe go to Fiverr and pick up a bit for some freelancing gig. It might be nothing, that is, might be obviously less than minimum wage, but at least it will be something. I will start building a system. I will start knowing how to invoice people, how to deal with clients, how to uh, figure out which clients to pursue, which ones to avoid. And then you, you build from that. Right? Success brings with it more success. That's, I think, the, one of the most important things to uh, piggyback on, right? to take advantage on, to start with small, yeah. low-hanging fruit, uh, easy wins, accessible thing, things that have high odds of succeeding, but they're small. Right? That's what you would say in golf. And then well, I think the easiest that. thing is like a job, right? Which I think yeah, is like, too. obviously this is like a show about startups. Yeah. And so we're all yeah. like, here's how to start a startup and make money on your own, which is cool. But like, get a job. I was reading online. Yeah, get, well, get a, a job project, in the tech industry right? is super, yeah, have a job and a side project. You can make a ton of money from a job and you can, if, you know, if you budget your time well, you can make money from a project on nights and weekends and it can be small and you can grow it to the point where you want to quit. But I was reading about like three of the ways that people get rich in the United States. Like I'm not sure how accurate the stat is. It's on a random website, but it was like number one, like inherit the money. Number two, marry into the money. And then number three was like don't have kids. <laughs> just essentially just like work a job, don't have kids, invest your money well. And like actually you'll turn out to like do pretty well, you know? <laughs> Great. I saw a bumper sticker on a car the other day that was kind of the same thing. Like, you know that like decal that's got like stick figures of like a family on the back of a car? It's like on every car and it's like two parents and like two kids. I saw one that was like two parents and then instead of kids, it was just a bag of money. <laughs> but it's just like the, the simple things I think can work really well. And I think even working at Stripe, like I know people who become like deca millionaires because they worked at a company that was helping a lot of people and they did a good job in that company. And if, if you talk about simple things working well, I think that that is something that many founders or people who are just new to entrepreneurship seem to completely ignore. Like everybody wants to build the perfect thing. Everybody wants to use the newest technology and wants to uh, create the perfect product, right? Even with info products, I, I get people ask me, how do you create a course? Like how do you, what kind of equipment do you buy? Like how do you write a book? Like what kind of software tools do you use? Dude, just write a book, turn it into a PDF and, and yeah. sell it on Gumroad. Or if don't ask me what tech stack you need to use. Like Google this most supported tech stack or use Laravel or Ruby on Rails technology from like 20 years ago. You're going to be fine. You're going to be perfectly fine. The thing that you're supposed to do is to help people, not figure out what the best tech stack is. Like that is that is where, where people have this, this kind of initial starting jumpstart problem. Right? Instead of just doing something simple, 
like what, what Daniel said, doing something that has a high chance of succeeding using reliable technology or just simple pieces of technology that you already know how to use and that other people already know how to use. They want to build this highly complicated unicorn kind of inspired thing. I, I think that is one of the biggest issues that, that I see founders or, or just creators of, of any level have in the beginning. So yeah, I, I guess if you are an entrepreneur that wants to get started, just use the thing you already know and then make something that people need, <laughs> and then you'll make money. I think it's a, I think it's a form of procrastination, even if yeah. people aren't, aren't consciously aware of it. Like it's hard to, to do the real thing, right? It's hard to go out and help people, or so it seems. It's much easier to sit around thinking about what tools am I going to use, what cover is going to be on my book, you know, like all these like ants, like what, what's the name of my company going to be, and like that's not the real. You challenge. need you need the sense of urgency. That like you need that fire, you know. You need to to remove the mentally remove the safety hinges. Yes. And know that if you if you don't make it you're going to end up in an arrangement that you'd rather not yep. be in, right? So That's why I don't yes. like the idea of like quitting your job with a huge nest egg. Like I've got $200,000 in the bank. It's like, you're just going to fuck around for three years and do nothing. It, and it in the last me. six no, months, no, it, you're going to do the real thing. I don't speak about it much because as well, it sounds like privileged that I sort of speak, but I, I think I had too much runway. And I think that's what food Same. in the beginning. Same. To be too idealistic, to dream big, and then sort of hope, luckily... Uh, so if I didn't waste it all and I sort of realized before it was too late. <laughs> when when we ran Feedback Panda, the business that we sold two years ago, well, three, four, I don't know, in the 2019, how long is that ago? <laughs> three years ago. When when we ran that for, for Danielle and I, um, my partner, co-founder and life partner, it, it, it was pretty much all we had in terms of wealth that was locked in, the, in that company. Like we had no nest egg to speak of, really. And that's also why we sold the business at the point when we did, because I was close to burnout I, I, there was a there was a like a material risk of the business evaporating if I couldn't function anymore. So that was one of the reasons why we sold the business at 55, 60-ish K um, MRR. We probably could have grown it to 100. We probably could have exited like like four or five times the, the amount we, we did, but we didn't and we couldn't. Like obviously the exit itself changed our life after that forever. But at that point, when we were running that business, right in the middle of it, at the end of the second year, that, there was a sense of urgency, but not a fun one, right? Not one that, that allowed us to um, create something new on the side or anything. We, we had to, we have to deal with this now because if either of us doesn't work anymore, the whole thing just gonna yeah. fall apart. And with that goes all the wealth we have. And, and that was a that was a risky thing, thing because I've been living paycheck to paycheck before that. I was a software engineer. I was uh, in Germany. We, you know, like it was it was just a regular kind of job that I had, and it paid well. But I didn't save. I was also not taught or ever educated on how to deal with money. So right. that is something that I had to learn from from the great Tony Robbins. Let me just admit it right <laughs> here, right? Like there was uh, I I had to read financial literature at thirty. 533 for the first time in my life understanding how to deal with money yeah and, and if you are that old and you don't know how to deal with this then you make weird and stupid choices that lead you to living from paycheck to paycheck so i'm fortunate that we had that business and i'm fortunate that we sold it and that now from this cushy kind of position i can make much smarter choices much more long-term choices i heard this called being called like the post-economic state of mind if you don't have to make a choice about tomorrow, the next uh, mortgage payment or your next grocery bill, then you make choices that are long-term, right? You make yeah. these these bets, small or big, whatever it is, in, in decades, not in weeks of time. 
timeframes that you have. So th that definitely makes a whole lot of difference. But we were under pressure. I was personally me, right? It, it was my, me being the only technical person in the company felt like if, if I'm not waking up at three in the morning, fixing some database issue, then our customers are going to quit. Everybody is going to quit. Like the mental pressure of that for years was quite substantial, which is why we sold. But I love um, that story because I think we've all been in a similar situation where we're under a lot of pressure. And mm. I think this goal of getting to a post-economic situation is kind of the goal for every indie hacker. Yeah. And the other takeaway I have from that is never be too, too humble to read a book, whether you're 35, <laughs> 45, 55, if you need to learn about finance, learn about finance. Uh, I think we need to wrap up. Daniel, you need to go. Yes, I need to go. Yeah, I, I, unfortunately, I do have something on my calendar. Okay, yeah. <laughs> I'll wrap up real quick. <laughs> Thanks so much, Arvid, Daniel, for coming on the show. You want to tell listeners where they can go to learn more about what you're up to? Yeah, Twitter. Uh, Twitter, same. <laughs> Divasolo. <laughs> Twitter, Twitter, Twitter. All right. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thank Adios. You.